The following is a sermon from the Edgington Evangelical Presbyterian Church in Taylor Ridge, Illinois. It's time now to open the scriptures together. And if you haven't already, let's open together to the book of Ecclesiastes and chapter 2. We are on page 554 of a Bible out of the pew rack if you need one. I encourage you to follow along with me as we hear the preacher speaking to us in the book of Ecclesiastes. We've been saying each and every week. Uh, how unique this book is, how uniquely challenging it is. I have admitted to you how uniquely challenging it is for me to preach it. And I maybe perhaps understand how uniquely challenging it is for you to listen to it, to sit under its preaching. But if we understand what the book is doing, uh, we can be guided along the way towards the conclusion that the book of Ecclesiastes wants us to make. But before we get to the big picture of Ecclesiastes, let's just think for a moment. Think for a moment about the fact that you work hard. Or you have worked hard throughout your life. Work is a part of your life. Whether or not you receive a paycheck for your work, you work hard. The question that the book of Ecclesiastes is asking this morning is, what of all that work? How should I think about it? And asking the question, what do I have to gain for all that work? What do I have to gain for all of that work? What's it for? Now, uh, as, I, as, I, as I know this congregation, as I know this community, we are a community that, that holds very highly the virtue of work and labor and satisfaction, I want to make sure that we are thinking about it biblically as well as holding it as a virtue highly. So, we are going with the preacher in Ecclesiastes this morning to ask the question, is there ultimate satisfaction to be found in my labor? Not is there satisfaction, but is there ultimate satisfaction to be found in my labor, my toil, my efforts? Now. An entire subgenre of country music is dedicated to this topic, isn't there? Like, especially if you're a fan, things start popping in your head. Alan Jackson, George Jones, Dolly Parton, working nine to five, et cetera, et cetera, right? We work, we work, we work, we work for the weekend, and we go back into the grind. Take this job and shove it. So, this is a part of our life. And remember how the book of Ecclesiastes is structured. The book of Ecclesiastes is structured to lead you down these various pathways and ask you along the way, is this the way to find ultimate meaning in life? Is ultimate meaning found in this? And along the way, the preacher has been leading us through these different avenues. Is ultimate meaning found in wisdom? Is ultimate meaning found in pleasure? Is ultimate meaning found in this or that? And along the way, wisdom, pleasure, foolishness, no matter how hard the preacher tries, he comes to the end of the road and finds that it does not satisfy his quest for ultimate meaning. So he turns again to another topic. This time... As I said, labor, work, toil. And at the beginning, look at what he's going to say about it in verse 18. He always tips his hat, shows you the conclusion first, and then explains why that it's true. In Ecclesiastes 2, verse 18, it says, I hated all my toil. 
So many people, many people expect work to give them their ultimate identity. Many people think that by their labors they will find their purpose in life. This explains why one of the first things you ask somebody that you meet them is, oh, what do you do for work or what do you do for a living? Because for so many of us, that answer defines our identity. And the question Ecclesiastes is asking is, are you finding your ultimate satisfaction in that identity of your labor and your toil? We are used to being defined by our jobs, but as we'll see this morning, work is not the means of ultimate satisfaction for you if you are a Christian believer. And it's not a means of ultimate satisfaction for anyone. We're not quite aware of it. So let's pray and ask God's blessing upon His Word this morning and we will see Him speak to us. Well, Father, we pause now with Your Word open before us, acknowledging that here You speak the Word of life to us. We praise You that You created the world by the Word of Your power, but that also You give to us this special written revelation that we might know what Your will is, what Your truth is, that we might not be consigned to, to mystery and ignorance about what it means to please you, but rather to know for sure what it is you call us to do and who it is you call us to be. And so, Father, by your Spirit, we pray, uh, come and illuminate our minds to give understanding, conviction, transformation by the Word this morning. As we express our faith in you, Lord, give us faith also in what you have spoken. So we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. And now hear God's word from Ecclesiastes 2 at verse 18 through the end of the chapter under the heading, The Vanity of Toil. This is the word of God. I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me, and who knows whether he will be wise or a fool. Yet he will be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun. Because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun. For all his days are full of sorrow and his work is a vexation. Even in the night his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. There is nothing better for a person than he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from him who can eat or who can have enjoyment for to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting only to give to one who pleases God. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. Amen. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of God abides forever. So may he write eternal truth on our hearts today. You know, that question... Uh, what do you do for work or like, what do you do for a living is a very unique question. Uh, I remember a seminary professor who would respond to the question in the most unique ways. 
he was someone who, who traveled every single week uh, between Charleston, South Carolina, to Atlanta, Georgia, and he would ride the, the same flight uh, every single week to go teach in Atlanta, where he served a church uh, in, in uh, South Carolina. Anyway, he would sit down next to a person, and sometimes, you know, you get that casual conversation. Uh, other times, complete silence. But when the question was asked, what do you do for a living? He would say, I am of the art and science of teaching people to live forever. Just to, you know, kind of reel in the person a little bit, because just to give you a little bit of a hint, it's a, a huge conversation killer when I respond, I'm a pastor, to what do you do for a living? But I imagine uh, for you, this is something that you're intrigued by as you engage in conversation with people. What do you do for a living? What kind of work in you're in? And then somebody follows up with, tell me about that, or how's that going, or tell me more, forever, whatever the case might be. Everybody wants to be satisfied with what they do. Everybody wants to be interested in what they do, to have interesting things to say about their work. The question that Ecclesiastes is asking is, are you satisfied? Are you ultimately satisfied in your work and in your labor and in your toil? The writer of Ecclesiastes is speaking about this subject, intersecting a desire that we have that for all of our work there should be something to show for it, right? That there should be some kind of product or lasting reward for our labor. Well, is there? Is there a lasting reward for all of our labors? And do our works and labors ultimately provide full satisfaction? The writer says, no. And here's why. And he says two things. And so what I want to do is I want to just unpack those two things and try to understand them. And then ask the question, how should we as Christian believers understand this very important topic of work and labor and toil in light of who Jesus is. So first of all, we'll, we'll, we'll stick with what Ecclesiastes is saying, but then try to expand beyond that to understand the big picture here. So first of all, we'll see that there are two frustrations, two vexations, two disappointments really raging against this reality that work, labor, and toil doesn't provide ultimate meaning for us. And the first reason why it doesn't and can't is because... All of your life's achievements, you ready for this? All of your life's achievements will one day be vanquished. So says the preacher. Somebody else will profit from all of your work. Look at verse 18. The preacher says, I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. Now, we might immediately think of that he's talking about a financial inheritance here. We might consider it financial. But the preacher here is also talking about that which we pass on. So it's not necessarily only financial. Consider that this could be you as an employee, your products, your systems, your ideas, your efforts, the things that you give of yourself pouring into your vocation. Somebody else is going to benefit from it. And you won't one day. Now, for some people, that's a motivation to work harder. For some people, it's a motivation to work harder, but for the preacher, it causes him an increased vexation and frustration because 
it reminds him of the banging drum that he cannot escape about living life under the sun that one day it's going to end. It drives at the temporary nature of life as fleeting vapor and vanity, the preacher's favorite word. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. So he says, your collection, that stuff that you love, one day is going to go to a dealer. The contents of your home will be sold at an auction. All of your barns will be cleaned out and other people will own your stuff. Somebody else will manage your portfolio. Everything that you have worked for in a lifetime to gain and accumulate will be gone and belong to somebody else. Everything. And maybe, maybe our possessions will end up in good hands. Then again, maybe they won't which is why the preacher is so frustrated, as he says in verse 19. He knows it's going to go away from him. Verse 19, and who knows whether he will be wise or a fool, meaning the person who has all of my stuff. Yet he will be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. You know, you could almost accept the loss of all your possessions if you were sure that they were going to go to someone who would love and respect them as much as you have. Maybe you would be okay with it, especially as you think about generational inheritance. It satisfies us to know that we are instilling lessons in future generations that they will honor with stewardship the things that we have worked for. But, but, you could have every T crossed and every die dotted in your estate plan, but it is not possible for you to know that the person who receives what you have toiled for will be wise enough to handle it. That's what the preacher's saying. And the reason why that this is of such great concern to him is not because he is assuming that successive generations are inherently foolish, although that is oftentimes the concern. The concern isn't just inherent foolishness, but rather because of what he says in verse 21. It's not just that I'm concerned that he's foolish, but rather, verse 21, sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. Meaning, you wake up to the realization that you're actually working for somebody else who's going to have what you worked your whole life for, and they just get it. The preacher says, vexation, vanity, this is wrong. And even if they have wisdom, they will never be able to appreciate what I feel about what I have created because I was the one who worked for it. They will never be able to exactly appreciate everything that went into your labor. Now, if we just take a side tangent away from Ecclesiastes for a second, if you are a Christian believer, this calls you into the wisdom of stewardship for the sake of yourself and successive generations. Good stewardship, acknowledging the value of labor and effort and stewardship of what God gives. But for the preacher who is communicating about the reality of life under the sun, meaning not in the sight of God, he says, when I look at this, I'm frustrated by it. It's going to go away from me and go to somebody who didn't work for it and I don't know what will become of it and I've poured my life's passion into this and it's just going to go to somebody else? The preacher here is touching on this deep 
desire that we all have for permanence. We want to last. We want our legacies to last. We want our reputations to last. This deep desire to do something that will endure forever. But he draws out this conclusion and says, we will spend our whole lives working to gain what we can't keep. We'll spend our whole lives working to gain what we can't keep. That's the first issue. But then there's the second issue with the vanity of toil. The first issue is leaving behind what we've worked for. But the second one is, as he considers work itself and the means by which he acquires, he says that work itself is the problem. He asks the question in verse 22. In verse 22, what has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? Meaning, what's it for? I wake up, I go to work, I come home, I go to bed, I wake up, I go to work, I come home, I go to bed, and on and on, ad infinitum. What is all of this for? And the imagery of toiling under the sun is very important, as I already indicated in the book of Ecclesiastes. The preacher uses the terminology of life under the sun to communicate a secular view of the world, life apart from God. But in the case of this, talking about effort and labor and toil under the sun, it calls out an imagery, doesn't it? Laboring under the sun with sweat pouring off of your brow and cows is on your hand and dirt under your fingers. It's describing this imagery of hard work. The kind of work that you do and nothing goes right and everything breaks down and all of your list that you had to accomplish that day is suddenly thrown out the door because you got to go get that part and do this thing and fix what broke instead of accomplishing what you intended to do. Vexation and frustration, the preacher says. And if we think that he's just talking only about physical labors, right, because not all of us work with our hands in that way, he also describes the sorrow and vexation of our hearts in verse 23 when he speaks of for all his days are full of sorrow and his work is a vexation even in the night his heart does not rest this also is vanity do you see what it's describing it's describing this cycle that takes place where we work all day long and we exhaust ourselves physically we come home and think we can take a break but the mind still spins and the heart still aches over what I have to do when I wake up tomorrow, and on and on. I'm laboring all day long with my body, and all night long when I'm supposed to be resting, spinning and spinning and spinning, the preacher says, endless toil. This also, he says, is vanity, meaning it cannot give to me ultimate fulfillment. Hear it again reason why he says this also is vanity is because labor, toil, work cannot give ultimate meaning. If you want to understand the big picture of what Ecclesiastes is after, I think that I can finally put it maybe in a sentence here. Nothing, nothing that God has made is able to provide you ultimate satisfaction because he has made it that way. 
Everything that God has made is not able to give you ultimate satisfaction because he has made it that way so that you wouldn't find it in stuff but him. It's God's intended purpose for you to chase something and be dissatisfied with it once you have it. That's what the book of Ecclesiastes is constantly doing. It uses that metaphor earlier on in the book about a man who's going around in the backyard, snatching at the wind, closing his hands, opening them only to find that they're empty again and again and again. And God has made this world with the intended purpose so that you will never get your hands around it if you think ultimate meaning is found in something created. So... What's left then? What do we do? There is now in our text a delightful momentary change of pace in the book of Ecclesiastes in verse 24. The preacher says in response to this, what's left for us then is to understand the way that God has made the world. It doesn't make sense to use something the way the maker of the thing does not intend. How has God intended we use the world? He has filled it with things to be enjoyed, but not worshipped. God has filled the world with things to be enjoyed, but not worshipped. Notice how he says in verse 24, there's nothing better. It's a delightful change of positive pace in Ecclesiastes. There's nothing better for a person than he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in all his toil. There are things to be enjoyed in life but not worshipped, meaning not elevating the gifts above the giver, but rather enjoying the gifts but worshipping the giver with gratitude. So the preacher is saying here that even amongst all the futility of life, and the futility of life is present if we're expecting these earthly things to give us ultimate meaning. Even in this futile world, there's still pleasure in it. It's full of pleasure. Eat and drink and find enjoyment. Conversation with friends. Having other people over for dinner. Socializing. Watching your children's events. Being a part of a church family. There are all these things in life that are wonderful to enjoy. But they're not ultimate ends within themselves. To find enjoyment in the gifts that God gives us is a good thing to savor ordinary living of eating, drinking, and working and living because these are God's gift to us. But you will get it wrong and share the preacher's vexation and frustration if you expect those earthly blessings to provide you ultimate satisfaction. So it's very important, whoever you are and whatever you do and whatever your life circumstances are, to take that formula and lay it on top of your life. What is present in your life? The things that are present in your life is God's good gifts to you to enjoy, but not to worship. Your children are a blessing. You should enjoy them. You shouldn't worship your children. You shouldn't orient your whole life around their schedules rather than the intended purpose of what you're doing as a parent to, to raise them. Your work is a good thing. You shouldn't idolize your job in such a way that you give the best of yourself to your vocation rather than to your family. There are all kinds of ways in which we can reverse the things that God has given to us and instead make good things ultimate things and thereby misunderstand what the preacher is saying. 
the preacher is saying here, it's not just that this is the right way to live, to enjoy the good things and worship God. It's the only true way to live. And if we've got it wrong, we will share in vexation and frustration. So let's, let's, let's do get specific and kind of come outside the confines just of the book of Ecclesiastes here for just a moment and think about work. God created work, didn't he? When God made Adam in the garden before the fall into sin, God discharged to Adam the task of maintaining and keeping the garden and, and spreading the dominion of God all over the earth. Before the fall, he was charged to work and keep the garden with dignity and honor in the presence of God. What happened after the fall in sin? God still commanded Adam to work, but told him that your work would be filled with toil and burden. You will till the ground, and the ground will cut you as you till it because it's filled with thorns, and you will curse the ground. Book of Ecclesiastes is asking, is it possible that by the sweat of our brow and the calluses of our hands to find ultimate satisfaction in life? The answer is no. You might gain, you might earn, but you'll never be satisfied for the reasons that he lists here. And God told Adam at the beginning, this is how it's going to be. You're going to work, you're going to work, you're going to work, but you're going to feel like your work is working against you so often. In this cursed world, we cannot find ultimate meaning, and so... How do we make sense of it? Well, beyond the scope of Ecclesiastes, beyond the curse of this, is the fact that Jesus has come into this cursed world to transform the things of this world. It's very important that we understand as Christian believers that Jesus has not just come into the world to save your soul, though he has, importantly so, but he's come into the world to transform your whole life and everything about the cosmos. He's come to redeem everything. He has come to redeem your work. He has come to redeem your labor. He has come to redeem your toil that you are tempted to find ultimate meaning in and transform it so that you will see it as a subsidiary to living in His kingdom and having ultimate satisfaction in Him. So, when our life is in Christ, the work becomes transformed. We don't expect our job to give us ultimate satisfaction. We see it as a vocation, something to honor the Lord with. It gives us dignity, but not ultimate identity. It doesn't define us, and therefore, there is no meaningless work, no unimportant labor. It all matters. It's all with dignity and all satisfaction. And I had to learn that lesson the hard way. I worked in four jobs in seminary one of which was uh, scrubbing the toilets of an invalid elderly gentleman who their daughter expected that every time he would use the toilet, it needed to be cleaned again and again and again. Spent hours cleaning the same toilet. And the question is, is there dignity in the vocation of cleaning a toilet in the kingdom of Jesus? What's the answer? Yes. You just have to be convinced. <laughs> the question I would ask you is, are you convinced that there is dignity in Jesus' kingdom for you to go about your labors so long as you're not finding ultimate satisfaction and meaning in them? The answer is yes. Whoever you are, whatever you do, Colossians 3.23 says, whatever you do, work 
heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. So it's a really unique way in which actually the preacher concludes this text because in light of this really oasis of positivity in verse 24, he pulls back again. Lest you think the preacher is too positive about things in life under the sun, he says more. He contrasts something. In verse 26, For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting only to give to the one who pleases God. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. He is saying, still in verse 26, that the sinner, the person who is living this life under the sun, apart from God, the person who is not living their life in trusting obedience and love for the living God, cannot enjoy his work, cannot find ultimate fulfillment. It's empty to him. It will be. Even if he is convinced that his ultimate identity is in his labors, it's not. And he goes on to say, the sinner has been given by God the task of gathering and collecting only to give to one who pleases God. Now let me just tell you that Jesus said something very similar. Hear it from the words of Jesus himself, Matthew 13, verse 12. For whoever has, to him shall more be given, and he will have an abundance. But he who does not have, Even that which he does have shall be taken away. What that means is that this is a sober reminder that to consider life apart from God is a terrible mistake. It's not just that those who are in God and by faith will have more and not those who are outside of the faith will have less. It's not just an accumulation thing. It's rather that those who are in God, those who are living by faith in Jesus Christ, will have everything. Jesus' contrast is those who have all and those who have nothing. The way the preacher does in Ecclesiastes is those who have some and those who have more. But what Jesus is saying, it's not the case that we accumulate our life and this person has some and that person has some and maybe they have more than the other person. Maybe she has more than he does. It's not a matter of that. It's a matter that those who are in Christ have everything and those who are outside of Christ have nothing. So when you start to evaluate what's my life and what is it for, the whole Bible is saying that real life is found in God and that to be outside of God is to not possess life at all, even if you have stuff. Outside of Christ, there is no ultimate blessing. There is no ultimate meaning, no ultimate satisfaction, no ultimate reward, just emptiness and futility. And that's the stark contrast of the gospel, that we are either in Christ or not. And our labor and toil and efforts and work are either redeemed with meaning and vocation and significance, or they're not. And we just chase endlessly a fulfillment that we're not going to get. So... What are you living for? 
And what are you chasing? What are you expecting to find when you grasp the air and then open your hands again if you're just after stuff or reputation or honor or whatever? What will you expect? If it's something that can be lost, stolen, decay, spent, or lose value, it won't get you anywhere. And God has made the world this way on purpose so that we will understand that the only thing that can give us ultimate meaning is God himself and his son, the Lord Jesus. Uh, Dear friends, I'm just calling on you to be convinced of it. To be absolutely convinced of it and thereby to have Jesus transform your work and vocation and toil so that you do it for him and not for yourself. Let's pray. Well, Lord, we thank you that by your word you give to us the instruction of real, true life. And we pray, Father, that by your Holy Spirit we might be wise enough to hear, but also to obey. Uh, Lord, may we be, as the people of God, a blessing in our community. We thank you for the virtue of effort and labor and work. But we thank you, Lord, that ultimately the greatest thing is to trust you. Help us to do that in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to today's sermon. If you would like more information about our church or its ministries, please visit edgingtonepc.org. May God bless and keep you.